You're listening to the Southampton Delivery Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the Southampton Football Club and all of the SFC fans. I'm really happy to be here. It's a pleasure for me. I would like uh, to make the most of with this opportunity. And now, your host, Matt Markstone. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Southampton Delivery Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the Southampton Football Club and all of the SFC fans. My name is Matt Markstone. I'm the host of the show. And no matter where you are, no matter how you may be listening, whether this is your first time joining the show or you've been a longtime listener, thank you for making the show a part of your day. I hope that you enjoy it. This is episode 53 of the podcast. It marks the beginning of the second year of production. Uh, obviously, I still have a lot to learn, but uh, it has been a, a great journey thus far. And I'd just like to take a second to thank each and every one of you uh, for listening uh, for participating, those of you who have sent in questions and feedback, uh, for all the guests and all that stuff, uh, this wouldn't be possible without you. And, um, each and every one of you has made me really feel like I'm a part of, of this. And this has been a great way for me to feel like I'm more in contact with the club, uh, and and the club that we support. And each and every one of you has, has had a part in that and, and making me feel like that. And I just wanted to, to say thank you to all of you. Hopefully we can continue to bring a high quality uh, podcast to you each and every week. Uh, that is that is the goal, and we will do that for as long as we can. Um, but as you can hear in my voice this week, I am extremely sick. Uh, came off a migraine late last week, straight into the flu over the weekend, and so far I'm having a fantastic time. I'm home from work, um, which is not great considering I just had three weeks of vacation. But um, it is what it is. So we are doing this now. And I will keep this short because as you can see, the length of the podcast is rather long and that is in part due to my migraine because I could not keep track of what we were doing. So um, anyway, uh, on episode 53, Cameron Alavi, you can find him on Twitter at Cam to the Yams, joins me to talk about the, the Christmas fixture list or the holiday fixture list, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we talk about those fixtures. Uh, we talk about him. Uh, we talk about the issues going on to Saints FC and we'll get into all of that with Cameron. And then because I felt myself getting ill late last week and I wanted to try to talk to Cameron, the the longer portion of the interview, uh, I wanted to do that before I felt too, too bad. And you could really hear it in my voice. Um, we didn't talk about the Fulham match. We actually recorded before the Fulham match uh, in an attempt to kind of get ahead of, of the illness. It didn't quite work, but we tried. Uh, and then so Harry Holder, uh, a member of the Saints Report team, uh, this podcast, of course, is partnered with the Saints Report. So for all of your Southampton news and needs, be sure to follow the Saints Report on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. The links are in the show notes. Uh, Harry joins me to talk about the full match. He was part of the uh, the group that that traveled to Craven Cottage, and we'll talk about that match and and kind of what it means going forward. So uh, we have all of those bases covered. But instead of talking about that more here, let's go ahead and jump into the interview with Cameron Alavi. Once again, you can find him on Twitter at Cam to the Yams. And if you're a US-based soccer fan at all, uh, you should go ahead and follow him and read his pin tweet, which is a list of 20 
or so youth players that we can all kind of look forward and hope uh, that will bring us some international joy here in the near future. So here's my interview with Cameron. Uh, I'll speak to you after that. I'd like to welcome to the Southampton Delivery Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the Southampton Football Club and all the SFC fans, Cameron Olavi. You can find him on Twitter at Cam to the Yams, and he's an East Coast Saints supporter. And we're here to talk about that and all of the fixtures and all the things that have happened over the festival period. So, Cameron, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time to join me, uh, even with the temperatures dropping into single digits where you are. I hope that you are warm. Um, just so you know, it's about 70 degrees where I'm at right now. Of course, Matt. Thanks for having me. And nothing warms you up like talking about Saints FC, right? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so Cameron, uh, we've been kind of talking a few, a few minutes kind of off off record, but um, why don't you kind of why don't we start with just kind of, you know, your your family you, you mentioned is is full of immigrants and, and they have come to the United States and they have brought with them uh, a love of the, the Premier League, but not saints um so you kind of have been influenced by uh your manchester united supporting family but you somehow uh, have chosen southampton as your club um which probably made things like the efl cup final and just you know the the one of the matches over the festival period kind of a uh, different for you uh but why don't you start with just kind of telling us how you became a southampton fan and what kind of made you choose southampton over uh any of the other clubs that were out there for you to choose sure sure so like you alluded to i been in the uh, D.C. area my entire life, aside from college. My parents were immigrants from, well, a lot of my family were immigrants from Iran right around 1980, and they've been in the D.C. area ever since then. And yeah, like I was telling you earlier, a lot of Middle Eastern families, South Asian families, etc., their default club is kind of Manchester United, because especially back then, that was the really kind of world-famous team was gaining success in international tournaments and all that kind of stuff. So United is definitely a team that I I do support in terms of my, I guess, out of all the big clubs, all the big worldwide clubs, that would be my team that I would choose. But in terms of Southampton, I, I believe it was maybe seven or eight years ago. I just kind of was getting into Twitter, Instagram, all those things and looking around different clubs. And I knew it. I had known Southampton from not only watching them on TV very sporadically, but also playing FIFA and learning about some of their great players and all that kind of stuff. And I noticed in, in initially that they had a really cool kind of social media presence at a time when a lot of other clubs were still kind of scared to make that jump into the main social media platform. Southampton was one of the pioneers of of that. I remember when they signed a player back in 2010 or 11. I don't remember who it was, but they had a behind the scenes kind of video with that player doing his physical and running on the treadmill with all those wires attached to him and a lot of cool different interviews and stuff like that. So I was immediately attracted to, um, I guess, kind of the inside scoop that you would get at a club of Southampton size that you might not get at a club like Manchester United or Real Madrid or something like that. So that was initially what got me into Southampton. And then one more example I'll use is about two, three years ago, um, the the two guys from Men and Blazers did a convention in Brooklyn. I forget what it was called. I, I'm sure it was called BlazerCon or something. But Ralph Kruger, who's the chairman of Southampton Football Club, was one of the main kind of keynote speakers there. But, you know, I was in Philly at the time at school and the tickets were $250 per person for the whole weekend's conference. And obviously in college, that was about out of my price range. So I emailed 
Southampton's kind of PR department or supporter relations. And they responded almost immediately. I pretty much emailed them begging, you know, I'm a huge fan in the, in the U S I would, I would totally freak out if I could go to this, I would be on my best behavior, represent the club. Well, blah, blah, blah. And then they responded almost immediately with, Hey Cameron, we've, we've set aside two tickets for you at will call for this. So I brought one of my buddies with me and we went to that conference for a day and a half and met Mr. Kruger. You know, we talked to him a little bit, even kind of more intimately before his big talk. And then the few Southampton fans that were there went in and we gave him a big round of applause. And it was just really cool that, first of all, really cool to see him talk. But second of all, really cool that a club like Southampton would do that for someone they obviously don't know, just because they realize the importance of each and every fan. And just the fact that each fan can have a big footprint in terms of spreading kind of the gospel of the club, even more so than a, than a fan of one of those much larger teams. So that's my little history of Southampton. And there are plenty of other stories as well. But yeah, like you said, the EFL Cup final was kind of my two favorite clubs against each other. I had joined up with some Southampton fans from from the city that I met um, through Facebook and through all this different kind of stuff. And one of them gave me a free ticket to the match. And just, you know, the hospitality was fantastic from everyone I met. And I sat right in the Saints section and just the, the, the chants that they were doing, so loud, so passionate, really gave me shivers. And that's that's where we are today. And with all those highs come a lot of the lows as well. So you get really you get really attached on both ends of the spectrum to the club. So I'm sure we're going to go into that later. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Every interaction that I've ever had with the club has been nothing but positive. And it's, of course, it's not that way for everybody. Um, but the fact that, you know, they are willing to set aside tickets for you to, you know, to see Ralph Kruger speak or to attend uh, BlazerCon or whatever it is, um, is great. And, you know, I think for me, one of the things that really drew me to the club was for me, a lot of it was the Academy. Um, I'm a huge, Oh yeah, that too, that too, for I'm sure. a huge Houston Astros fan. And so the Academy, the farm system that like player development is important. And at the time when I started to watch the club, that was, you know, you look at all the players that had come through and even if they had gone other places, they were, they were special in that, in that regard. And maybe that's tailed off a little bit. I'm not sure. It's tough to tell right now because we don't have the players uh, from the Academy necessarily getting as many first team chances now. And of course, you know, Kuman had said, you know, they're not good enough and all this stuff, but we'll, 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 we'll focus on that later. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a pretty fascinating story. And thank you for being willing to, to share that. Um, and once again, for, for coming on the show, when you went to temple, um, what did you study while you were at temple? Sure. I, uh, I studied, I was kind of a double major math and economics, and then I was going to try to major in Spanish too. And that was just too much to do all three of those. So snuck that down to a, to a minor and just studied math and economics and watched a lot of soccer, went to a lot of pubs. Philly has a great kind of soccer, soccer scene, a lot of a lot of pubs and restaurants devoted to it. So it was a great place to go to school for, for a lot of reasons. But you're not, you're not a union fan though, correct? I did actually intern for them when I was a, when I was a sophomore in college. So I worked for them for a semester and had a really good time working for them, made a lot of great connections, met a lot of really cool people. And I definitely do like the union, but I'm definitely also born and bred DC United fan, season ticket holder, all that kind of stuff. So I still will go to a union game once in a while if I'm in town. Sure. Um, but definitely a diehard again, for better or for worse, diehard DC United supporter. Yeah. Well, hopefully you guys get, uh, that stadium gets done and you guys don't have to go to uh, RFK, um, anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we did a, yeah, they did a big send off for that. So hopefully it will be kind of awkward. If we have to go back. <laughs> yeah. But, 
Um, kind of a busy schedule and we've been kind of planning this for some time, but you know, we have several matches to talk about. We have Spurs, uh, we have Manchester United, and then we have Crystal Palace and because we're recording prior to the, the Fulham match. So we won't, we won't talk about that, but um, just looking at some of those matches and I can just glossing over kind of boxing day a little bit. I was hoping that that was just going to go away. It seemed like there were a lot of things kind of going around the team. Uh, and then when we played United, it was hoping it was going to get better. And then Crystal Palace kind of just like said, like, no, we're, we're not actually improving and we're so inconsistent. Um, but we'll go ahead and discuss kind of all of those a little bit more in depth, um, mm-hmm. starting with Boxing Day. And uh, for you, that when you were watching that match, what were you expecting? Were you expecting us to get any points out of that match? Or what were you, what were you thinking going into it? Um, I guess the first thing I noticed was that the starting 11 was was quite negative, I think. Um, our midfield kind of trio in the center was Romeo, Hoiberg, and Lamina, who on their day, you know, they have good qualities. But those types of players kind of just scream that you're not necessarily playing with too much creative ambition in a match and that you're that you're definitely going to be bunkering down. And it was always obviously going to be a tough ask to bunker down against some of the talent that, that they have. Um, that Tottenham has 90, 90 minutes during the match itself. I mean, obviously a lot of, you know, a lot of rough things happened in the first kind of 60 minutes or so. I think another thing for me, when, when we are so dedicated to playing it safe and playing it defensively is that when we do get forward, you know, one of my philosophies as a coach is when you go forward, you know, if you're going to start a counterattack or any kind of attack, Try your best to either it ends with a shot on target, the ball going out of bounds or or something like that. But if you just kind of dribble into the middle, turn it over, for example, Redmond, when he was as as left wing cutting inside, if you turn it over there, that's you know, that's that spells disaster. That's a recipe for disaster when a team like Tottenham can counter back at you. So one thing I would have liked to see more was us trying to relieve pressure a little bit. And when we did have our sporadic attacks, just to kind of make sure that they were intelligently done, I think. I think a lot of a lot of the issues came from careless turnovers as, you know, it was a holiday kind of and a lot of different factors go into that. But yeah, that it was definitely not the best performance. Um, we scored a couple goals, which for Southampton in recent times, that's a pretty good accomplishment in itself. But Again, yeah, I knew I knew right from the start that we were going to be facing an uphill battle with with the starting eleven that was put out. Yeah, and part of the the reason for the starting eleven that was chosen was because we had people out with injury. So you had Target there instead of Bertrand. Uh, you had Stevens playing, I think, instead of instead of Cedric. And those are those are big losses. You look around. You look at our midfield with with Hoiberg, uh, Romeo, and Lamina. You can kind of trade any of those three out for the most part, and the the, the quality doesn't drop off as much. Um, but then when you when you look at our fullbacks, you, we can't really afford to 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 drop Bertrand and Cedric because I think the fall off of that is is, is quite uh, it's it's a lot. There, there, there's a huge drop in quality, but it's it's nothing against the guys that are there uh, after them. It's just they're they're just not uh, quite the same players. But um, even so, I think Target does an adequate job for most roles. Uh, for most things, he puts in good crosses. He's just not quite as as speedy. He's not going to beat players one on one and things like that, uh, which I think we 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 look for with uh, with Bertrand especially. So, um, but, I, but like you said, I thought that several of, of of Tottenham's chances, especially early, came from players like Romeu, who maybe hasn't been as good this year as he was last year, um, dwelling on the ball, getting caught, and and kind of being dispossessed. 
And as soon as we did that, as soon as we do that, they are Spurs are Spurs are attacking and they're attacking in numbers and they're smart about it. Uh, they are not leaving themselves open for the counterattack very often. Um, we really struggled to create very many chances. But I remember tweeting during the game, we're just not good enough to be able to give them chances uh, and expect to get anything out of the game. And sure enough, as soon, once the goal started flowing for them, uh, it was pretty much off to the races. Yeah. And as you said, I mean, I think a lot of our players were obviously playing uncharacter- uncharacteristically bad, too. I mean, it was just one of those off days. But another thing about someone like Lamina, who has a great performance and then has the physical attributes, but can also, you know, be victim to an identity crisis of sorts once in a while in the, t- in, in the sense that you play him in the middle of the park when if you're really trying to go out there and just bunker down, kind of park the bus and really play defensively, he's not necessarily the best player to do that because even though he will get some tackles in, he's also one of those players who kind of doesn't have the positional discipline that someone like Romeu would have. He... If Lamina sees kind of a, a light at the end of the tunnel going forward, he'll, you know, burst out and go all the way up and, you know, leave some holes in the middle. So and same with Hoybier too. He's definitely not a natural, you know, number six, natural defensive midfielder. So it was a risky move to play those players combined with that tactic, I think, because they're not naturally the type of players who are just gonna be they almost get bored sitting in, waiting all game. Right. So I don't and like you said, I think Romeu it kind of threw the whole thing off because Romeo's uncharacteristic mistakes stemmed from the fact that, you know, maybe he was just trying to make something happen because nothing was happening. And a lot of times that happened with our wingers as well. It's been happening with our wingers for, for who knows how long. So I think it was just a, the combination of tactic and personnel was definitely not right in that in that game. Sure. And we've seen those three play together when we were playing a back three or a back five but not in the 4-2-3-1 kind of setup. Um, sure. And I think it, it it worked well playing against a team like City or playing even against Arsenal. Uh, I think they were used that way. And I think they did a, a, an adequate job there, but it just didn't seem to quite come off. And whether it was, you know, who's going forward and who's filling in and maybe the, the ideas just weren't quite or the positional assignments weren't quite clearly communicated. It, it just didn't, didn't quite work, but I think we have to give a little bit of credit to Spurs for kind of exploiting all of the, a lot of the chances that they were given um, but a lot of people had real issues with the way Southampton went about that match. Um, I, at halftime, I thought that the, the scoreline at two nil was pretty fair. Um, just given the quality that Spurs had and, and kind of the mistakes that we made that allowed them to, uh, to score kind of, uh, but people kind of said like, no, like we, we, we were looking, uh, you know, pretty poor and not really up for it. And then I think the yeah. second half kind of confirmed what people were saying. That's, that's a good point as well. I mean, it was a distinct lack of effort from, from what we usually see, which could mean a million different things. Um, I can, I mean, I'll go into this later, but I think a lot of that has to do with the whole identity thing. And people are claiming that we might, the club might be losing whatever identity or kind of um, dogma that it had. Um, But yeah, there was definitely, definitely a lack of effort that, you know, at, at that top level, making that much money, I think the least you would expect is when someone puts on the Saints shirt that they're at least giving their all when they step onto the pitch, which I think a lot, I think most of us would agree was not quite happening then. Yeah. And, and part of that, you know, I, you know, you have your kind of connection with Man United and I think my best friend is an Arsenal fan. And so I kind of watch Arsenal the same way. And they, there's been criticism over, over Arsene Wenger of not being able to, to really be the motivator uh, of the players. He kind of expects the players to show up and, and kind of get up for it themselves. And Sometimes it doesn't happen. And when it doesn't happen, that's part of your job as a manager is to be able to, to motivate the team. 
And as much as you can talk about it, it we, we talked about it before in here. It's it's not so much like like Pellegrino does that. You know, he doesn't really seem like the man manager uh, type uh, of of manager. Sure. And for better or worse, he he came from a club Alaves, which you know Cinderella story for them to even be in in the first division of Spain. So he came to Southampton with kind of that most other clubs are better than us. T- technically mentality but you know moving on from that there there was a lot of stuff going around at that time about about van dyke um there was you know he wasn't in the squad there were you know speculation all that stuff and then between then and the manchester united match they announced that he had been sold to liverpool and he was he was done and it felt you know i think some some fans were upset that he had gone to liverpool but i think most of us looked at the price tag and, and his attitude over the past six months and just said like, good riddance, you know, let's, you know, if we use that money and, and it, the keyword there is if, if we use the money and invest it into the squad, we could be in a much better situation than uh, we are now. And, and to be fair, Van Dyke hasn't been great. Um, he probably hasn't even been our best defender over the course of this season. Um, but I think if you ask anybody, you know, if, if you can take one player off the squad, they're taking Van Dyke every single time. But kind of going into United, it was a chance for the players to kind of show that they were focused and that the kind of whatever had kind of fell over them, it was a chance to put that away. And then I think the performance kind of went out and did that. But before we get to that, what was that day like? Cause it's around the holiday. So were you with your family who is Man- our Manchester United supporters or were you back on your own or where were you when that match took place? Yeah, I was with a couple, just a couple of my friends and cousins and we were all together watching it. And, um, it was, I think the majority of them were not Man United fans. So they were just kind of rooting for, from a neutral perspective for a good, for a good game. Um, yeah, it was, it was a, it was, a, it was an interesting game to watch. I mean, for a nil nil, obviously I'm biased because I have an affinity for both clubs in a way, but for a nil nil, I thought it was fairly exciting. Um, it wasn't a boring nil nil. It was, it was a smart nil nil, which completely different from, the the Boxing Day match against against Spurs, so it, it's it's kind of hard for for either of us to verbalize exactly what was different in that match, but I think the opposition had a lot to do with it as well. Yeah, yeah, and kind of looking at that match, I didn't get to watch it kind of uninterrupted. I had uh, it was away with family, and so I was kind of watching on the laptop. At some point, mm-hmm. people are talking to me, but it, it was going on, and I was watching. I was and I was overall pretty impressed with the way that we seem to show kind of more of the character that I would, I would expect of us, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and the problem for me then stems from like, you know, why, why the inconsistency, why do we not have it on boxing day, but we have it against Manchester United. Why, why can't we carry that over then to crystal palace? Why does it seem like we are, you know, constantly misfiring and, and, and just can't seem to get a, a real solid run going. But I think some of the, some of the big talking points, um, against United were one that, that the Lukaku and Hoot kind of collision that nothing was, nothing was intentional, but uh, obviously Lukaku, uh, was taken off the field and then, and then Hoot has since been diagnosed with a concussion and he's going to miss, he missed the last game against Crystal Palace. He's going to miss this weekend against Fulham as well. But then you kind of look at the team that we have out there and it's, you're kind of wondering if we were ever going to score, you know, long hadn't scored in, in, you know, something like nine months or 11 months or whatever it was. And, and I thought there were a few instances where we might've been in trouble, but for the most part, I thought we played really well and we kind of held it together. But what, what were some of the, maybe some of the things that you noticed about the match that were maybe a little bit different from Boxing Day? Sure, sure. So I guess starting right from the uh, starting 11, having 
the the presence of of McQueen, Sam McQueen, who I think did a really good job in when he was deputizing last season. From from all I've seen, he's been a solid, solid left back on on both sides of the pitch. Um, has a tendency to build chemistry really quickly with whoever he's, whichever left winger I guess he's playing with. Um, so that was nice. It was nice to see him, even you know, a little bit different from Target, very different from Bertrand. Um, another thing you notice from the starting eleven, no Nathan Redmond. Maybe coincidence that we played better without him in the starting eleven. Some people would say it's not a coincidence. And then the big thing was obviously Forster not being in the starting eleven, which. Finally, it happened. It seemed that he had been undroppable for two, three years now, even with some plenty of plenty of shoddy performances and, and individual errors. So McCarthy came in and I think did a, did a really good job and very commanding and very definitely just more reliable than Forster's been recently. And we can all hope that getting dropped will be kind of a kick in the pants for, for Forster to step up his game because like we've, we've seen at Liverpool with Mignolet over the last couple of years too, you know, not having a serious competitor is not good for a goalkeeper. It, it, they take their foot off the gas and, and that happens. So that was all, I mean, that's just all related to the starting 11 um, on the pitch. Like I said, it's, it was, it was hard to, uh, hard to address exactly what went differently between Tottenham, Tottenham's the Tottenham match and the Man United match, aside from individually, just the effort and the performances both center backs, Yoshida, who did extremely well. Stevens at right back was was absolutely fantastic. Argu- arguably the man of the match. Um, I believe I believe we dropped Lamina for for Ward Prowse. We had Tadic in there too. So players that know their role, know their identity, and are more intelligent on the ball, and they realize that. When we get the ball back, it's not always about, oh gosh, we have the ball now. Like this might be our only chance. Let's go down to score. Instead of, instead of thinking that, they're thinking, okay, we got the ball back. Let's pass around for 45, 60 seconds, get a break. And then if we go down the field, maybe lose the ball in the corner. That's fine. You know, we've done this before. We'll defend again, but we just needed a bit of a break. So the, the personnel was different and the personnel in my, in my opinion, this time matched, matched the tactic of, of the manager a little bit better. Um, and you, you, you have to give a certain amount of credit to Pellegrino for having the guts to drop someone like Forster. Um, you don't need as much, as much guts to drop someone like Redmond, but someone like Forster, who, like I said, was pretty much locked in for years. Um, I definitely raised an eyebrow when I saw that he wasn't in the starting 11, but ended up being a, a pretty good decision. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I said, hard to explain, but I think it was just a better fit tactically, this match. Yeah, there was definitely some chatter uh, online before the team sheets were released saying that Forrester wasn't going to play. And I'll be perfectly honest that sometimes I just tend to just dismiss a lot of it because everybody, Twitter makes everybody a reporter. It makes everybody an in the know. And it's just like, you know, we'll, we'll see. You know, I, I'm willing to wait, wait it out. Um, because for me, knowing something five minutes before somebody else doesn't really mean that much, but, um, you know, eventually, you know, yeah, Forrester, it was, it did come out that McCarthy was going to start. And to be honest, like I had seen some of the under 23 stuff with McCarthy and he didn't look all that great sometimes, but, and I kind of thought that Forrester was starting to turn it over a little bit, but then I get maybe the boxing day match just kind of pushed it over for him. And I know a lot of people were happy to see McCarthy get a start. Um, and I thought he did well. I thought he played very, very well against Manchester United. And, and as for the goals against Crystal Palace, I'm not sure there's a whole lot he could have done uh, differently to, to make those, um, to make saves on those. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get to that. But, but like you said, the, the tactics match the personnel a lot better against Manchester United. And whether it was because we had come off of that EFL Cup defeat to them the year before, 
whatever it is, whatever made us kind of ready for that game. Um, I wish we could do that every game, but it, it definitely seemed like there was something there that the everybody was playing kind of to their full potential and it, and it showed. Yeah. Um, and one thing I think is important is, is I think Tadic works best when he's in the middle. Uh, I think the, the mm-hmm. more times we stick him out on the wing, uh, the more, the, the more times he kind of disappears. Uh, but when he is playing at his best, he plays in that kind of number 10 and he presses with the striker um, and he tracks back and helps uh, win balls back in the midfield. And then he creates a lot of chances for people. Um, and I think that, that to get him going again, to get him going like he was going two years ago or three years ago, uh, that would definitely increase uh, the chances that we, that we, that we create, whether it increases the goals because the strikers we have don't take those chances. Or, uh, I, I'm not sure, but um, I can definitely say that coming out of that match, I felt, I felt a lot better about things. Not that, you know, we were 100% out of the, out of the woods. A draw is only a point. Um, but I, I definitely felt that we were building. We could have, it, it was a base to build on. Um, but then we, of course we went into crystal palace yesterday and, and we didn't really do that. So, um, is there anything else on, on the Manchester United match that you'd like to kind of point out before we go on to crystal palace? Um, yeah, I think we were talking earlier and you had mentioned a question you had, which is, um, it's a really good question actually. So I think, I think you're the one who thought of this question was, um, which team after that match would have to be more disappointed with, with the result and with their current place in the standings and contextually what their what the result meant um for me i would have to say that southampton would be would be the more disappointed team for the season as a whole at that point i mean obviously it's even been exacerbated since since the palace match as well sure um for man united i mean city's city's just doing so well that i think man united realistically is just trying to lock down number two worst case number three in the table but Southampton knows that they they should not be down there. I mean, they they went to Old Trafford. What was that? Was that just last season? Maybe it was two years ago and won one nil. They they snatched it at the end. So they know that they can hang hang with anyone on the pitch on their day. So I would say that they would be up to this point the more disappointed side, more disappointed club up to this point. I'm, I don't know if you would agree with that, but I think. We shouldn't be with with the amount of individual talent we have. We shouldn't be anywhere near the relegations though. Yeah, no, I, I agree um, with that. The only the only thing I would say is that it's the fact that City is the one that's winning the title right now that, that they're yeah, running away yeah, with it. That it's sour. It's sour a bit for sure. Like yeah, like you said, the if you look at where we should be with the sale of Van Dyke, we kind of have the ninth most expensive squad. We're so far down the table now that we are actually. I've been keeping track of this uh, on a on a spreadsheet basically. Uh, looking at the 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 amount of money that each squad costs and where would that would rank them on the table if you just ranked it by by squad value and then also doing it by where they are on the table then we have the worst differential of anybody right now mm-hmm. um and and so to me that that screams a lot of you know we're just not getting the quality out of the players that we should have because I don't often think that we overspend on players and so because of that I think that we should be you know we should be plus 1 or plus 2 uh, based on, on, on what, on the money we spend. So we should be somewhere in, in seventh or eighth. I think I would, I, people would be accepting of that. Um, mm-hmm. but we're, we're not, we're, we're out of the relegation zone on goal difference alone. And I think the easy thing to do is blame, to blame the manager, but I'm more and more leaning towards that's, that's where the start of the issue is. It's just, he's not quite getting the most out of the players and that's got to start. That's got to be the guy motivating them day in, day out. And then, you know, you, then you look at the board for, you know, not being for picking the wrong manager, maybe twice in a row and not being able to hold on to the managers that are, are good for the club. But going into Crystal Palace, I was hopeful. 
I don't know how you felt kind of going into it. I know Palace were on a better run of form, maybe. Uh, they, they have been playing well lately. Uh, you have Zaha, and when you think about Zaha running at either Payed or even Stevens, uh, one-on-one, I don't like that matchup, but I, I did really think that we were going to be able to, to, to play a, a game, and I thought that three points was necessary there, and that would help kind of maybe jumpstart us and, and give us some momentum. McCarthy kept his place over Forrester, and, and then Pellegrino even mentioned today in his press conference that McCarthy would start again this weekend uh, at the Fulham match. Um, but when it was announced that, that who was out with a concussion and that would give us a, a similar center back pairing as to last season with Stevens and Yoshida, uh, which meant Payette had to come in and play right back. Um, going into the Crystal Palace match, how were you, were, were you expecting three points? Did you feel three points was necessary or or anything like that? Yeah, I, I was expecting three points. I like you, like you said, I, I trusted PA and I think he actually, in my opinion, did quite a good job, you know, over the course of the match against Zaha. There were plenty of moments where he kept up with him, you know, stride for stride pace wise, as well as was able to, to shield him off the ball and use his body as well. So, he did. He did impress me, especially since he took that knock in the first half, and we thought he might have to come out after that. Um, yeah, I mean the the starting eleven itself wasn't bad at all. That that actually gave me a good amount of amount of hope. But I mean this this match was again this is the most recent match, so I'm a little bit kind of more hysterical about this one. But as bad as the Tottenham match was, I think this this match was a prime example of a manager that understands the Premier League versus a manager that doesn't understand the Premier League. So the first half, you know, th- it's it's going to be really stupid. I'm pretty much going to be talking about weather for the next two minutes. But that's fine. The first <laughs> the first half, you know, I guess to to preface this, Pellegrino, I think he does have the ability to coach a team to play good attacking football, but his teams from what I've seen this season and last season are built to play in one way. And they don't necessarily have that backup plan, which is a criticism of a lot of different managers. So what I saw during this match against Crystal Palace was the first half, we played very well, passed the ball around. Our four defenders all played well. Um, Our attackers did okay. Didn't turn it over too much. I believe we got our goal in the first half too. We did well in that sense. Shane Long finally got back on the score sheet, all that warm and fuzzy stuff. And then Throughout halftime, it started raining harder and harder. Second half of the match, Hodgson, who I believe started in maybe a 3-5-2 with a lot of flair players on the outside, um, he adjusted at halftime. He went 4-4-2, traditional, got two strikers up top, just went more direct, less, you know, less pretty pretty soccer, less, less flair, because he knew that with the conditions, he... We just have to bunker down and just wait for the opponent to make a mistake and a ball bouncing past them and all this different kind of stuff using the using the elements to his advantage. Whereas on the flip side, Pellegrino made no adjustments, which, you know, off, off the surface, you might say, well, obviously he didn't make any adjustments. They're winning one nil. They're playing pretty well. But that's this again. This is a prime example of the conditions were getting worse and worse. You have to stop playing. And of course, this is easy to say in hindsight, but you have to stop playing the the kind of tiki taka style that you might have learned in Spain and just you know almost like Palace just bunker down and be more direct be more almost adventurous in a way and I'm not I'm not some sort of super you know super genius football mind like a Guardiola or a Mourinho or whoever but even I noticed the difference in the the, the switch in tactics from the second half from Hodgson switching to Pellegrino not switching and how that kind of did us in in that we didn't have a backup plan whereas Hodgson immediately was not afraid to swallow his pride and change the, the plan he started the match with you know so 
it's like, it's hard for me to put into words all this all this stuff, but that's that that was the main reason why we lost, and that's the main reason why I think this match above any other match has to be pinned on on the manager. Yeah, I think start of the match, you know, it it looked like a match that was coming at the end of the festival period. You know, it was a little bit sloppy. I'm sure the weather didn't help. It wasn't like either team was super dominant at right at the beginning. We definitely had the majority of the ball. And then when we got the goal, we had wasted a few chances before that. I think Tadich had a chance. I think Long had a chance. I think Hoiberg had for, forced to save. But then, you know, PA puts the low cross in, Long gets on the score sheet. And it looked at that point like something was alive there. We had been pressing we'd been winning the ball back and then as time went on we stopped doing those things townsend had a strike from distance like 31 or 32 minutes in and that was kind of the first real sign that i saw that that our defenders and our midfielders were kind of backing off we gave him the space and allowed him to shoot and we have done that too often and and that we kind of get i don't want to say complacent but we score and then we kind of sit and we 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 allow them to come onto us and i think as the first half progressed we did that more and more and i think that when halftime came and it was only one nil i think hotchin at that point is is saying to his players like you know this is fine like we're okay and i think pellegrino's telling his team the same thing but i think hotchin is is definitely right in that sense and that he knew what was happening and he could see what our players were doing whereas i think pellegrino needed to 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 recognize the fact that we were sitting back too much and, and encourage the team to press forward because we've done this before we've gone behind, we've gone in front and then we've allowed teams to come back into the game. We did it at Arsenal. Uh, we've done it uh, several other times. And so to, to do that again, it, it, like you said, it's on the manager at this point and it comes more into play when you look at uh, the, the substitutions that were made. Um, yeah. When, when Hodgson substituted uh, Van Arnhold on for Johan Kabay at halftime and then Sacco on for Schlupp, that that's the substitution I think that really swung in in Palace's favor. Yep, uh, exactly. Yep. And we didn't know how to cope with him. Uh, he seemed to cause us all kinds of, of problems. And then you look at who we brought on. We we brought on Davis for JWP, and then Hoiberg came off for Gabbiadini. Um, and and at that point, it seemed like we just lost control of the game. Yeah, um, there was a desperation move to bring on Gabbiadini. But I think that you you give up, you know, any any semblance of midfield control at that point, and now Palace have all of the ball. And as, even when it was level, we never looked like we were going to be the team that was, we're going to press on and win that match. Yeah, and I think that for Saints fans is is frustrating. And I I think that had we gotten the draw against United and then had we gotten three points against Palace, I think people start to inch back towards giving the manager a little bit more credit and giving them a little bit more time. But now I I don't know, you know, last year we had a manager with a place in a cup final and the football was boring and he's gone this year. I'm not sure there's anything that that Pellegrino can do now to kind of bring the fans back onto his side. Like we both said, I think a lot of credit has to be given to the opposing manager for making those adjustments. And yeah, what Pellegrino did was, again, it was another it was another case of the tactics, I don't think, matched up with the personnel that he put out there. So, for example, I was fortunate enough to go to the EFL Cup final, Southampton and Man United. And that's that was one of those matches where one of the many matches of last season and this season where Ward Prowse was kind of playing the right right wing, right midfielder in the uh, 4-2-3-1 formation. And against teams that attack as much as, you know, a superior side, um, quote unquote, such as Man United, Ward Prowse thrives in that right midfielder role because he has more space to operate because their opposing left back is going forward. 
he he has the time and space to put in either early crosses or get to the byline and put in dangerous cutbacks and all that kind of stuff. But against quote unquote kind of worse team or a more middle of the road team like Palace, who think defense first, structure first, and then we'll go forward. He is not the player to play that right wing position, especially if you're going to go if you're going to go ahead in the match and then sit back. You need wingers who, if they get the ball, they're just going to take it and just relieve pressure even for a minute or two. So again, Ward Prass is obviously not that type of player. He's not a he's not a speedster. He's not he's not a pacey winger in the traditional sense at all, as we all know. So it was another it was another example of you know if you're going to play Ward Prowse in that situation, I just don't think that was the right player in the right position at with the right tactic in a way. I mean. Like I said, he did really well against Man United. He did he did well against uh, I forget who it was. There was one of those other big teams we were playing last year where he also played the right midfield position and had a great time and put in so many dangerous crosses. I think he put one into Gabbiadini who scored one. So if you're playing against that type of team, that's the situation to put someone like him at the right wing position. But when you're playing against a, a more defensively oriented team, you don't want a center midfielder out wide because again, you're like you said, you're inviting pressure. You're saying, okay, this guy's not going to be a huge threat when he's on the ball. So let's get the ball to his side and wait for something bad to happen so we can come counter them. Sure. Sure. Coming out of that match, I think everybody's disappointed. I think people want, they want the manager to go. Um, but then uh, if you, if you've been on Twitter or whatever, you've been watching that um, Adam Blackmore and Adam Leach have both said they've asked for interviews with Ralph Kruger or Les Reed and haven't gotten anything. And they, if, if anybody's going to get those interviews, it's going to be those two. And Adam said on the Total Saints podcast, one of the podcasts that he is a frequent guest on, a regular guest, he he's asked for that repeatedly. And they finally got that interview with Kruger and both of them released, I think, interviews either yesterday or the day before. Uh, I think it was the morning of the of the Palace match. And listening to, to Blackmore's, there were a couple of things that people have latched on to. One, uh, Kruger called us a small club. And then secondly, he gave uh, the manager his full backing. And so to me, that signals that the manager's not going anywhere. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of stuck with this even after the palace defeat. And I don't, I'm not really sure what to make of it other than, you know, I guess the problems are just are higher than just the manager and, and maybe it, it does have something to do with the board, but I, I'm not sure what to do to, to change that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I read those interviews, listened to the interviews as well. And I think last season with, with Quell was really the first time that I can remember since I supported Southampton, since I've supported Southampton, that they, it really felt like the board and all the, all the uh, higher up decision makers were actually affected by, by the complaints of, of the fans. I feel like in, in a vacuum, in, in their own world, they wouldn't have, have sacked well based on what he accomplished and what he accomplished was quite good for a club with only a middle of the road you know squad value and all that kind of stuff as you were saying but yeah like I said last time I think last season was really when they I feel like they were affected and they were almost pressured into sacking well when they otherwise might not have done so so I think a lot of this season has been damage control in a way and when Kruger says that he fully backs the manager I think Again, this is all speculation. We don't know what's going through their heads, but in my opinion, I think he's he's scared to to sack Pellegrino to do something rash like that because I don't think he wants because I, I mean what I know about Ralph Kruger is I truly believe that he for my interactions with him personally I think he is a good good man and an ethical man and someone who does definitely genuinely care about the club so. 
I think a big reason why he's saying that he's supporting the manager even through this tough time is that he doesn't want the club to be seen as one of those hectic clubs, one of those manager merry-go-round type clubs, like like maybe a Swansea, just not to throw them under the bus, but as a recent example. And I think we all agree that, you know, something needs to be done at some level, whether it's the manager or someone else. But like I said, I think I think they just don't want... It started last season with the Puel complaints from the supporters, and that's what led to his sacking. But I think they're really preoccupied in recent times with with the image of the club rather than letting the football do the talking on the pitch. Yeah, and it's tough to kind of to kind of kind of put it all in perspective and then have the loss at Crystal Palace and kind of try to, you know, compartmentalize it. And, you know, he tried not to blame it on 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 the manager. He did put a lot of it on on the Virgil Van Dyke situation. Not and some people have said he's put a lot of it on Van Dyke himself. But I think a lot of it was on that situation. He says there was a there was a cloud kind of over the club, and that the the emotional environment was very fragile and things like that. And and I get that. I understand that there's a balance there, but it's not just the Van Dyke situation. It's it's the fact that you know we made kind of a a, a moral stand. You know, even though uh, officially, as far as I know, no bid came in for Van Dyke over the summer. It was very clear that Van Dyke wanted to leave, uh, and he was told no. Um, but you make that, that stand and, and you get, you may be an extra 10 or 15 million pounds out of the deal, uh, in January, but really, I don't, I'm not sure that's helped us at all to this point in the season. I'm not sure that if you're going to say that that cloud has been there all season, uh, maybe it was the wrong move and, and Hey, they, they took a chance and maybe it backfired or whatever, but it's, uh, it, things are, are definitely not looking great right now, whether even with Van Dyke being gone after the Crystal Palace match, I'm not sure that the team is, is all that much different mentally, or if, if the manager is going to be able to, to change that going forward, you know, um, maybe a different manager can do that. But like you said, we don't want to be the club that's constantly changing managers and things like that, but maybe that just means you have to pick the right, the proper manager um, sure. uh, when you, when you do get the chance and maybe we haven't, we haven't done that, um, yeah. as much, but based on, on those things and, and where we are right now, would you say that, that the manager needs to be removed or would you, would you be willing to kind of continue on with him and hope that we spend some of this money in January or does it even matter? Like Kruger said, is it bigger than just the manager or is it bigger than what any one person can, can change right now? It's 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 such a loaded question that it's it's interesting because there have been a few serious red flags. For example, against Tottenham, it was just a pure lack of effort for for any number of reasons. But you would never see you know a performance like that from someone like you know under someone like maybe Diego Simeone or something like that. Like the bottom, the bare minimum is you know blood, sweat, and tears when you put on that shirt. Um, so that was a red flag to me. Another red flag was what I was just talking about in the Palace match of not adjusting on the fly and not being used to the situation and the elements that you'd get in, in the Premier League from where you might, might get somewhere else. Um, then a slightly more promising side, it was nice to see, okay, I, I shouldn't speak you know so negatively about a player on our team, but it was nice to see someone like Forster dropped for one or two matches to give a chance to someone else, someone like Redmond, um, who's hopefully finally almost, you know, he's, he hasn't played that well in, in a while. So someone who's actually getting uh, almost punishment for not playing well and not, he's not getting, he wasn't getting picked the last, you know, couple games. So there, there, there's some promising things in there and he's Pellegrino is definitely not afraid to shake things up. Um, 
It's tough to say because, like I said, with Palace, it's it it's definitely a case of a manager who's not used to the to the league and the the pressure of the situation that he's in. He's for he came from a very small club where anything is a good good result, even if you lose like one nil to to Barcelona, that's a great result. So it's tough to say. I mean, it's it's also tough to say when it would be too late. My, I guess the optimist, optimist in me, I don't think we'll get relegated. I think we have what it takes in the squad talent wise to win a good, you know, out of the last kind of 18 matches, win a good at least five of them, if not more. I don't know, to be honest. I mean, like what, what Mr. Kruger said about the Van Dyke situation kind of looming over them. And I mean, good luck to Liverpool having a player on their squad who's willing to just completely check out like that if a bigger club comes in. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll, I, in, instead of beating around the bush, I would say another two or three matches. If we don't win in the next two or three matches, I think that's that's got to be it. And they have to swallow their pride and stop worrying about the image of the club, which I know is extremely important to Kruger and the rest of the board. But at some point, you just have to admit you were wrong and just pull pull the plug on something that's not working. And I'm looking at our fixtures. The next three are at Watford, at Tottenham, and at home to Brighton. If we get less than two points. From those three, that that ha- I mean, that has to be it for me. I think. I think if we get two points from those, we'll be in the relegation zone. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it it is it is tough. And I'm not based on the comments that, that Kruger made. And maybe that's the kiss of death. Maybe sometimes when the board says, you know, oh, the manager has our full our full backing, it's two more matches and he's gone. But like, like you said, I don't get that from Kruger. I think if he says that, then that's what they mean. And I think that they would much rather have us just kind of trust the system through the scouting and through all this other stuff that, that, that Pellegrino has, has bought into the system and it's going to work and, and they need us to do that. And I always like to say that I think it's easy for me sitting in the United States to say, yeah, trust the system. You know, it's, I, I pay my cable bill once a month and, and I get it. I don't spend my time driving to the matches. I wake up 10 minutes before the match starts and I watch it. Um, and you have people that are going to these matches day in, day out that are, that are spending their hard earned money on, uh, whether they're traveling to the away matches or whether they're they're going to home matches, this is not a, a cheap or easy thing to do, and and to sit out there and 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 suffer the elements and do all of this and see the the club that that played attacking football just two or three seasons ago and to see the players that we have sold kind of continue to to move on and progress and 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 the things that they do and to watch us kind of fall down the table, um, you know. I, I, I'm, I, I can't fault people for, for complaining and wanting the manager to leave. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, completely. I mean, they're completely justified to do that. And one thing you brought up that just kind of sparked my memory, but is that as a whole, the identity of the club, it has, I believe it has a strong identity, at least compared to a lot of other clubs in England. Um, we know Southampton usually brings to the table a good academy, a well-run club, kind of family club, all that. But it's been hard for them to adjust to the fact that being in the Premier League now for, I guess, the sixth or seventh straight season, what's what's been tried and true in the past might not work. Like, for example, when I when I did have the chance to spend a few minutes with, with Chairman Kruger, um, kind of off the record, talking to him for a bit, one thing that he admitted to us, and I don't know how public of knowledge this is, but that he admitted to us that, yeah, it's true. Schneiderlin wanted to leave, but we'd said, you know what, like, I want, we want you to honor your commitment, spend one more year at the club, work your butt off, and then we'll give you your dream move in that case to Man United. And then he said they did the same thing with Wanyama. He wanted to leave, but they said, hey, you know what, stick around for one more year. You know, we will put, put your shift in and give back to the club that's given this opportunity to you, and then we'll sell you on to whatever club you want to go to, whatever. And 
I guarantee you they tried to do the exact same thing with Van Dyke, but every personality of every player is different, and that that didn't work with Van Dyke. Van Dyke responded to that by switching off instead of stepping up. So just a little thing like that, that it's it's another one of those swallow your pride moments and realize that every 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 situation is different and that black box or whatever they talk about, you know, what's tried and true is not going to work every single time. Every individual is different and the Premier League is an ever-changing kind of environment and realm. So that's that's one of those identity things that I think they failed at, at, at least in this season, in the, in the case of Van Dyke. And that I can definitely see how that would affect the club as a whole from the top all the way down. It's always going to be difficult to, because we had the black box and because that, that, that style of scouting worked for a few seasons, other people catch up. Um, other people, it, other people looked at what Southampton was doing and said, that is, that's the, that's the thing we're going to do. And then somebody's going to figure out how to do it better. And we, we were plucking people out of the Dutch league and we were, we were siphoning people off of Celtic and now other people are going to do the same thing. And then people are coming to us and doing the, the exact, doing that to us as well. And it's to be expected, but we have to, you know, there has to be one more adaptation on the scouting front and, uh, in the boardroom. And I'm not quite sure it's there. And, you know, I don't know. And that, that brings us to a question from a listener because uh, for so long, we have kind of always gotten the bargain kind of buy. Um, and, and some of them were really, really, really good signings. But Dan, who is at Holy Hoiberg asks us, would you rather Saints go out and buy proven quality this window, given the reality of a relegation fight, or that they trust the black box and stick to the transfer strategy we've used for years? So that is one question to us. And then uh, Rich Lacey, who is at uh, UTS180MAC, says, our normal transfer policy is brilliant when you have a manager that knows what he's doing. But unfortunately, at the moment, we have a clueless uh, wonder that is virtually untouchable while Ralph and Les try and sort the team out. So uh, they're kind of two kind of different things. One, one we don't trust the manager, which we've kind of established between us as well. Um, but what would you want to see Saints do? Do you want to see us go out and spend uh, maybe the 60 million or the 50 million that's available from that, that, that Van Dyke deal uh, on, on somebody who's proven quality and then that, that's going to come on. And if so, where in the team do you want that? Or do you want to just see us kind of stick to the strategy and trust the system? Well, the first one's a really good question. The second, the second listener, Rich, get, brings up a good point. It is definitely tough to trust a transfer policy inherently when we've already we've already alluded to the fact that a lot of times the the tactics the team goes out with do not match up with the eleven that's put out onto the pitch, and it's just not a good fit. It's not the right personnel for whatever whatever the, the manager is going for in that specific match. So it's tough to say. I mean, I definitely think we have to spend some of that money right now. I mean. We, you know, every every club that's in a relegation battle looks to do whatever possible to strengthen their squad in January. That's one of the benefits of having this window in the middle of the season. Um, as I was mentioning before, my number one area of need would be would be the right wing position, which, um, you know, is not inherently one of the most important positions on the pitch for for most teams. But ever since Mane left, and even Mane himself was not really a right wing traditionally. We haven't really had that because you've noticed the last two, three years, we've, you know, the majority of the time it's been Dusan Tadic out at right wing and he's simply not equipped, you know, his skill set is not to be a winger. And then we've tried Ward Press there who we've seen him play well quite a few times, but it's not his natural position either. And as I was mentioning earlier, we, we have Buffal now on the left and he's starting to grow into the, to the league and doing better. 
on the right side, we don't have anyone like that. I mean, we need someone who can just take the ball, beat a player, relieve some pressure, and just do traditional winger things. I mean, there's no point of playing that position or having that position in your formation if you're not going to have the right person to to fill that. So in my opinion, that's the number one place we need to fill in. I actually don't think that Van Dyke was quite as undroppable as a lot of people do. I I mean, the pairing that took us to the EFL Cup final without conceding a single goal all tournament was Stevens and Yoshida pretty much the whole way through. And we have Gardos coming through. We have Bednarik, who we signed. We have, I'm not too worried about our center back depth, to be honest. So I would go with the right wing position as number one need. And then in terms of everywhere else strengthening the squad, that's where I do think that we should actually stay true to our identity. Um, I mean, if, if, if a huge problem with the team right now is a lack of effort, then maybe instead of spending 10 million pounds, 12 million pounds on a squad player that's playing a third of the time or half of the time, call up someone from the academy to fill that role. I'm sure they could do that just as well. For example, and I don't want to pick on any one player because we have not really seen him play, but the example of, of Jan Bednarik, there's a young center back we signed, um, obviously hasn't played much, so you could definitely you could definitely classify him as a squad player or even more of a more of a prospect. Why couldn't we call up Alfie Jones or an, another player from the academy to fill fill that role? I mean, Alfie Jones is in the first team, but he's in, I would definitely say Bednarik is closer to the first team than anyone from the academy like that. So I think in terms of big purchases, we have that one position of need, which I alluded to, maybe another number 10 to compete with Tadich. But just around the club, I would love to see the academy kids given more of a chance because of, I, I think that they would bring that that blood, sweat and tears that I was mentioning earlier. And that's something that we really, that we sorely need. If, if our manager is not the best at bringing that out of the players himself, why don't you put the players in there that would organically bring that out there? And, and you mentioned maybe buying some some proven quality, and then you mentioned the position of right wing. So to you, are these rumors of Theo Walcott? Is that what you're looking for in, in that spot? Do you think maybe he's the guy to, to come in and I'm not sure he's a leader per se, but but provides maybe some some stability and some some of what we need on that right wing. And then you have a, a front three or those that attacking range of midfielders with with Walcott on the right, Tadic in the middle and Buffal on the left. Uh, you can supplement with Redmond when you need. Does that kind of sound more like what you what you're looking for? Yeah, I actually it almost slipped my mind until you brought it up. But that would yeah, that's in my opinion, that would be a good fit, good fit for the side. Assuming Pellegrino is going to keep trying to play as attacking football, as he says, and not, you know, not ever kind of have a backup plan, which he might not. Then I think that Walcott would be um, a good player in that sense. It would be a good Southampton signing as well, just from the aspect of. Um, someone who who came up through the system here and who knows the club and wouldn't be such a huge splash around the world like there are rumors of Balotelli and that would just be something like you know that's completely out of left field and that would really make me lose faith in any sort of identity we had left as a club but I think I think Walcott would be would be a good fit there and a definitely a traditional winger who again as as a coach myself I'm a big believer in balance like as a, as a fan of the U.S. national team. If we're playing with someone like Yedlin on the right at right back who likes to burst forward, but someone like Tim Ream at left back, speaking of Fulham, Tim Ream at left back, who is is a center back playing left back, not a bad player by any means, but there's no balance in that team because you have one side attack, 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 the other side defend, defend, defend. So if you put Buffal and um, Walcott, excuse me, on opposite sides, that's more of a balance. And in my opinion, that kind of is a almost like a feng shui kind of thing. That would that would kind of put those pieces to the puzzle better a little bit. So again, I'm being super optimistic, but 
yeah, I mean, right wing, if right wing is position of need and we happen to be linked with, with Walcott, I don't think that's a coincidence. I, I, I do think that that's a pretty substantial rumor. I haven't really been a believer in the Walcott thing as of yet because it's, it's not what the Southampton way is kind of whatever, whatever it actually is, you know, but sometimes, you know, um, if you look at championship teams, you look at, they go out and, and if they're missing that one piece, you, you recognize that and you go get that piece, you know, and you, and you, you, you feel that need. And sometimes it works at the opposite end as well, where if you are facing something like a relegation battle, you have to address your needs. Now you can't really take risks. You have to just kind of go and say like, this is what we need. And we're going to pay up to do it because the, the risk of, of dropping to the championship is, is real. And that the long-term impact for a lot of teams, it could be detrimental. You know, you look at a team like Sunderland, who's, who's obviously just having a tough time in the championship alone. They are not bouncing right back. And if you can go down and bounce right back up, okay, like maybe you're okay. But it, I, I don't think that even the, where we are right now, I don't think we would, we would hold on to the same squad. I think we'd lose a lot of players. Um, I think you see more players trying to get out of the squad if we did drop down. And I don't really think that is uh that is good. And it would definitely wouldn't be good for you and I being here in, in America because we would not be able to, uh, to watch, uh, probably even half of the, half of the matches, uh, legal or le- illegally, but man, I, I know there's, there's, we've gone over a, a lot and I'm hopefully it comes off somewhat, uh, coherent and, and structured, but I'm not sure if it does. And that's, that's my fault as, as the, as the host, but hopefully that, hopefully that's come off a little bit, but is there anything else that you'd like to add about the team before we kind of wrap this up? Um, no, we covered, we covered a lot. We obviously talked about the manager a lot. Um, one thing I, I almost had forgotten about, I was doing some research for, for this podcast and, um, a couple of players that we have out on loan, one player that I would love to see come back almost, almost, you know, immediately would be someone like Jordi Classy, who was obviously a bit inconsistent with the club, but he is an intense player. Like, you know, exactly what you're going to get a tough tackler, a kind of a bulldog in the middle. And, those are all kind of like cliches of of English players in a way, but as a, as a as a as a Dutchman, he fits that mold too. And something that would almost, in my opinion, be like a new signing. Just just getting that spark in the team, and I'm sure he, even when he wasn't playing well with the first team, I'm sure he brings that spark to training as well. Like he, someone like him, someone like even Harrison Reed, who I also think quite highly of. Those are players that really get stuck in in the middle of the park there, and that can only be good for a team that really needs any any sort of jolt. So um, I'm wondering if they're going to be taking a look at some of their lone players too, and because it's such an extraneous kind of almost emergency situation, I'm I'm interested to see if they if they address any of those lone players as well. Yeah, and what I think whatever you can do right now to to inject some intensity and some enthusiasm into the team, you do it. Um, I don't think there's anything. You, you don't leave anything out at this point. You have to get that intensity back. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what does it, but hopefully the manager can figure it out. And that, then, you know, ultimately that's what he's paid for. That That's his job is to, is to manage. And it's not just tactics. It's, it's players and personalities and all that other stuff. And I know sometimes at the club, it's not, you know, the day-to-day transfer stuff that he's mis- necessarily involved with, but he, he is the one who talks to those players and is around the players um, as much as anybody. And, and that's his job to kind of, to kind of do that. So, uh, hopefully, hopefully he does. Cause otherwise I think we're in for a, a tough rest of the season. And, uh, I know, you know, online is, is a small portion of, of the fan base, but the mood is definitely not, not great. You know, it's not yeah. very optimistic. Like I said, I, there has been a lot of stuff behind the scenes going on the past five, six months. 
But I think we both agree that he's da- definitely down to his last couple of matches, in our opinions. I mean, you understand where the chairman is coming from in terms of, like I, like I was mentioning earlier, keeping the identity and trying not to make the club seem like it's going through some sort of a hectic period. But we we definitely could use a shakeup if things don't turn around very quickly. So anyway, I mean, I, I really appreciate you having me on this on this podcast. And this is genuinely, genuinely the first time I've really talked so in depth about Southampton football club, maybe ever, because there are not that many people to talk to around here. So it felt cool to kind of get that stuff off my chest and hear what you had to think as well and our differences in opinions and our and our similarities in opinions. And um, yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm, I've been a listener for a long time and I'll definitely be getting this one out to as many people as possible just because I'm a arrogant and I want people to hear me. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, and, and this, this podcast has always been, it's about getting to know other fans and it's about getting, it's about me learning about more about the club and being more involved. Um, and so it's always good, I think to, to hear. And I did want to ask you, um, just a few kind of, uh, other questions. I, I noticed you travel quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. you were in Spain. I think you went to Malaga. I think you went to the Bernabeu. So I just want to ask you, you know, what's, what's your favorite stadium that you have visited? Uh, That's a great one. That's a great question. Um, man, RFK. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's, that's a good question. Cause I have been fortunate enough to be a different stadium around the world. And I have, I have this giant bucket list of all the derbies I want to go to all the huge rivalries around the world. I want to go to, and, um, Atletico versus Atletico versus Real was the first big one I crossed off my list. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm sentimentally a big fan of where the union play, um, used to be called PPL park. Now it's talent energy stadium is right underneath this beautiful bridge, um, going into New Jersey, right, right along the Delaware River, and really nice setup like that. I mean, the the Metropolitano, which is Atleti's Stadium, absolutely gorgeous as well. And then being being able to go to a match at Wembley Stadium was was unreal, and and the atmosphere w- even made it even better. So that's yeah. I mean, I hope in a year's time I can tell you that Audi Field is my favorite field <laughs> when that when that finally opens, but. Right now, I think for the for the for the context of why I was there, I would I would probably go with Wembley. I know that's cliche, but no, no, it was, it was just good. gorgeous there. Amazing. It's good. Uh, if you oh be- wait, no, 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 hold on. The Maracana in in Rio. How could I forget? I went to the Germany versus France quarterfinal in the World Cup, and um, that is that is like the hallowed ground of soccer. So I don't know how I forgot that, but that's 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 definitely at the top of the list for sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. And um. I did see that you, your boss approved your travel, your, your vacation for this summer. So are you indeed going to Russia? Yes, I actually am starting a beginner Russian class in DC starting next Tuesday night. So it's like a, it's like a 10 week class or something. So I've been studying with Duolingo a bit, but I figured I had to take a class because there's really no substitute for learning it in, in person in front of sure. other people. So yeah, I'm going to. I'm only going to be there for six, seven days, but I'm going to a few matches. Really hopeful that I'm going to be able to go to at least one, if not two of the Iran matches as well, even if I have to take one of those long trains elsewhere into into the depths of, of the country. But yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited. I mean, it's sad that the U.S. won't be there, but it's a really amazing experience going to a World Cup, meeting people from all around the world, learning about different cultures and languages and just playing, even playing pickup soccer with, with everyone. So sure. 
Um, yeah, if you want to, if you want an extra, if you want to come, I'll, I have a pretty big suitcase. So, <laughs> oh man, you, you mentioned the language thing. You are, you speak three languages currently, right? Um, yeah, I do. I, I, I mean, I grew up speaking, speaking Farsi. I have a good competency of that just from being around it all the time, but I'm not super great at it. And then I studied Spanish and Portuguese, um, throughout my entire kind of schooling. So, okay. um, I guess four languages, uh, Yeah, yeah. not four full languages, but Going to Brazil for the for the World Cup really solidified Portuguese for me. So that was that's like my favorite language now. It's a beautiful language, beautiful beautiful country, beautiful culture, and yeah, yeah. That's another. That was definitely another reason I wanted to go to Russia was to challenge myself in that language, which has been extremely challenging. It's a very difficult language. So. Well, yeah, it's it's not really related to any of the other languages that you've you've spoken in no, the past. Not so. at all. Not at all. So hopefully this class helps me a bit, and then I'll try to be kind of the translator for my family. While we're over there, that's awesome. I I wish you I, I, safe travels and all that stuff. I hope it, I hope it goes, I hope it goes really really well. I'm it's pretty it's impressive. Um, all right, take care and, and sorry once again for keeping you up so late. No problem. I appreciate it, man. Thanks. All right, later. Bye. And once again, that was Cameron Alavi. I'd like to thank him for taking the time to join the show. And like I said, if you're a U.S.-based listener, follow him along for national team stuff. Uh, maybe you're a D.C. United fan. You like keeping up with that kind of stuff. That's all good. And I'm actually really looking forward to following his journey to the World Cup this summer. Uh, special thanks to Cameron for for joining the show. Uh, but now let's go ahead and jump to my interview with Harry Holder. As mentioned previously, Harry is a member of the team at the Saints Report. So be sure to follow along at the Saints Report for all your Southampton news and needs. The Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook links are all in the show notes below. So Harry joined me to discuss the match against Fulham, about his trip, the atmosphere, and everything else. So here's my talk with Harry Holder. I hope you enjoy it. We'd like to welcome back to the Southampton Delivery Podcast, Harry Holder. You can find him on Twitter at HarryHSFC. He is part of the Saints Report, and he's here to give us a, a brief report on the Fulham match. So, Harry, last time I spoke to you, uh, it was after another cup run, or not run, but a defeat to Wolves. So a little bit better circumstances here, but uh, welcome back to the podcast, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, no, my, my pleasure. Um, and as always, uh, this podcast is partnered with the Saints Report, so I appreciate you guys, uh, the support that you you provide the show and uh, being partners with it. And you were part of the traveling uh, fan group that went to Fulham on Saturday, mm-hmm. um, o- over 5,000 strong. So uh, can you just, before we get into the match, can you just kind of tell us what that was like, what the atmosphere was like inside inside Craven Cottage? Yeah, it was, it was very good, especially from a Saints point of view. But I mean, you know, to have almost like a third of the fans there, pretty incredible. Because, you know, usually with these third round cup ties, you're not going to get too many people there. But, you know, it, was, it wasn't exactly the furthest journey. And I, I was I was surprised, you know, because we got more tickets than we were hoping for. So we had to go and get some more from the club. But yeah, re- really good atmosphere from the Saints fans and, you know, strong support for the boys. Yeah, and that's... Not something that I think we've maybe expected, I guess. It, it hasn't seemed like the support mm-hmm. for all of the players has been there uh, necessarily. And yeah. I think some of the players still got a little bit of uh, a stick or uh, if we can say abuse, I think, is, is some people are calling it on, yeah. online. But, um, you know, I guess that's just frustration uh, coming up, boiling over. But, you know, f- I think it's really good to see that that many fans are willing to travel. And, and whether it's just the day out in, in London or whether it is to go and, and kind of 
uh, be a part of, of of the group, whatever it is. I think that the the support was there, and even on the stream that I was watching, it was clear that you guys were overpowering a lot of the Fulham fans in terms of of your your chance and support and things like that. So I thought that was uh was pretty good. Um, yeah. So so cheers to you guys and everybody else who who was there. But when the lineup came out, I, I know we were kind of worried about some things based on injuries and things like that. Um, but when you saw Stevens, Bednarak, and Yoshida all in the lineup, were you expecting that back four to to shape up like it did, or were you expecting something maybe a little bit different? Um, I, I was I was certainly expecting those to be the players playing. But you know, to have um, I mean, Jack Stevens has played right back a couple of times this season before, and I th- I think he's he's done okay there. You know, he's obviously he's not a natural right back; he's a centre back. But I think he's done a decent job there. But then it turns out he, he was playing in the middle with Yoshida and Bednarek was at right back. I I wasn't too sure how that would go because last time I saw Bednarek, who didn't exactly set the world alight, but he he was he actually played very well. I thought so. I I, I was pleasantly surprised by. Our, performance especially it seems like better performance has divided some opinion it seems like uh you know southampton put out the the stats of him his defensive stats and things like that and he, mm. he seemed like he did really well i personally was kind of I, I guess i just look for the right back to do a little bit more attacking and i i, I should just understand that that's not necessarily going to be his game he's going to be more kind of defensive and and i guess he did okay i mean there were a couple of crosses that that he yeah. allowed in but other, other than that i think he he was just fine and when you look at, you know, he's not the paciest of players and, and he was up against a, a fairly pacey winger and he, he did, like you said, I think he did, he did all right looking back at it and being maybe a little bit more objective. Yeah, he's not the fastest. He's definitely not attacking. We had Ward Prowse playing down the right anyway. So I think he sort of left the attacking side to Ward Prowse, which, you know, I, I completely understand that. But from a defensive point of view, I thought, I thought Bednarak was especially good considering, you know, that's just only a few more minutes of this season, to be honest, in the first team. Yeah. And I mean, last time we saw, I think those three in the lineup together, I want to say that was the last time we talked, it was against wolves and they played in a back I, three I think it was, and, yeah. and they, they got, yeah. they got torched. So, um, much better from, from those three, uh, in, in general for, for this match. So I think that was, uh, it was, it was fairly decent, but, um, overall uh, looking, looking at the match, do you think the result was fair? First of all? Um, I, I, I think, I think it probably was. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we had, most of the chances i can't really remember too many clear-cut chances for fulham but then in the second half they were almost completely on top of us we sat back as we have done this season with one nil leads and i mean us we the fans haven't appreciated that too much because you know we'd like to see us go on maybe for sean get second and third goal but so they had most of the possession, but we had, I'm pretty sure, all of the clear-cut chances, and we could have could have put a couple more away. But on on the balance of the whole game, I, I think, yeah, by by a single goal, I think that's that's a fair reflection of the game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we did have a, a couple chances. Hoiberg created a chance. He picked somebody's pocket, mm-hmm. laid it off to Long, and then wound up uh, getting it back and hitting the keeper with it. I think Stevens hit the hit the crossbar off of a corner. And I think the only chances that Fulham really had, there was one where McCarthy came out, tried to catch it uh, and it kind of spilled away and then they fired it over the bar. And I think they had the one other chance, but uh, like you said there, even though we, we managed to, to, to pull out the one, no win, there were, I think some worrying signs based on the fact that we sat so deep with a one, nil lead. And those are the games that we've kind of continued to maybe concede goals in the premier league like that. Is that, would that does that make sense to you? Or is that something that you saw? 
Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Like we saw it, I'm um, thinking, you know, there there are quite a few games this season where we've been we've been ahead by by one goal. We we've sat back and they've got in. I I can think of you know the Arsenal game. Yeah, we drew one all that. That's a good result against Arsenal, but we were leading for about 85 minutes. They we just completely sat back for almost the rest of the game. Didn't take the rare chances that we had, and they scored late on. Same same against Huddersfield. Go one nil up, sit back. So I, I can say at least we didn't concede this time, but I, I think it's still worrying that even against you know Fulham, they're 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 a mid-table championship side this season. They, I don't really think they'll be trying to push on for a playoff spot. I think that's probably not going to be their ambition for this season. But you know they're they're a decent championship side. But the fact that we're still sitting back on the one-nil lead against you know, Sam and letting them have chances and come forward, we seem almost almost scared to go on. I think that is very worrying considering the situation we're in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess going forward, you would hope that the manager would take something from that and, and learn from that, but he doesn't seem like he is really willing to move away from that. But we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But like, do you think the players themselves can take anything from this and maybe use this as something to, to build on going forward? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to hope so. I mean, it's it's a cup game, so I suppose the result in the grand scheme of things, it, it really only matters if who we get in the next round, whether we go on and get a cup run at the end of the season. You're not going to remember a one nil win against Fulham as a turning point if we then go out in the next round. But yeah, hopefully, you know, it is a win on the sheet. Hopefully, the players can, you know, start to kick on. Maybe maybe that's given them a bit of confidence that they've been needing because we we haven't looked at the same side that we have been over the last few seasons. Lately, we've been looking completely shot of all confidence especially in some players so hopefully you know they can t- take the clean sheet take the win and go and build on it and say we can we can come better off the back of this um all right anything else uh jump out to you uh, on your uh, either on your trip down there or uh or anything else um just you know you know just out of the end of the match the final whistle goes but then it, I, I was surprised to see so so many players looking almost dejected you know Gabbiadini I, I can really understand why he's frustrated you know he hasn't been getting much if any game time like he's on the bench again only got 10 minutes at the end maybe he should have scored with the chance that he had but he looked he looked uh, awful when he came at the final whistle you know he, he was head down sulking off the pitch didn't really clap the fans until he was almost already off the pitch um so he looks he looks down and i i just hope he he gets a chance you know i mean he's a, he is a good striker at the end of the day and i think if we play to him we'll score goals but whether we see him at this club in february is another question because there have been rumors that he wants to leave but who knows and then another one nathan redmond just did not look happy which is i mean it's perfectly understandable there are, there are fans booing him which i can't understand you know yeah he hasn't been in the best of form recently he, he has made mistakes but hey hasn't everyone then you know i think just get behind him support him then maybe maybe he'd be better maybe he could use our support at the moment and maybe he'll come good yeah yeah i think it's always difficult because you understand the fans frustration but the uh sometimes the the abuse and things that are said to to the players and yeah yeah and and just getting on his back before even sometimes Mm. you think like he gets out there on the pitch and he's trying to like you know put himself in the game and then the first thing he hears is just fans on his back and it's like you know why am i you know why am i even doing this you know so it's 100 it's all uh um yeah so Anyway, Harry, I, I appreciate you, you you doing this, and I thank you for My pleasure uh, being a part of the Saints Report and for supporting the podcast. And uh, you know, thanks for traveling and supporting the players. Thank you, thank you. No problem. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. And 
once again, that does it for this episode of the Southampton Delivery Podcast. My name is Matt Markson. I'd like to thank you for joining us. I'd like to also apologize for Darth Vader seeming like he's breathing into my microphone. Hopefully I'll be better next week. As always, this podcast is partnered with The Saints Report. You can get in touch with them for all of your Southampton news and needs on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. The links to those are in the show notes. Additionally, you can get in contact with this show on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're at SFCDELL underscore IVERY on Twitter and Instagram. We're at SFC Delivery on Facebook. There is no underscore in the Facebook address. The arc for this show is done by the We Are Southampton page on Instagram. For match day edits, polls, competitions, and more, be sure to check out the We Are Southampton page on Instagram. Matt, who runs the page, has been a huge help. He's been a guest on the show several times, and he really helped me get this thing going. So be sure to check out the We Are Southampton page on Instagram. Music for this episode comes from the Free Music Archive. The intro song is Epic Song by Boxcat Games. And the end of show credits that you're hearing now is Aim is True by Pottington Bear. If you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It only takes a few minutes and it really helps spread awareness about the show. Additionally, if you're new, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts to be sure that you do not miss future episodes. The most current episodes are available on SoundCloud, and most episodes are available on YouTube as well. We'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, remember that together, we march on.